0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Well, Courtney. Hi. <laughs> We're back again.
1: <laughs> we are. with
0: a bit of a different episode this time for people.
1: Yeah, this one yeah. Is, is not research. It's not uh it's different. It's I very say, different. Yeah,
0: I'd say it's it, yeah. You'd say it's lived experience. Yeah. Um. So we have a, We have a lived experience expert, uh, <laughs> Susie Hinks.
1: Now that that's an interesting phrase, actually, lived experience expert. I feel yeah. like we're all lived experience experts somehow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so her particular area of lived experience expertise is schizophrenia. Yeah. Uh, which she goes, she's quite open and talks about in you know a great length with us about her experience. Um, you know, living with it, mm-hmm. not not knowing she had it, then being diagnosed, and then what happened after she started getting treated. Yeah, and and that
1: we sort of we uh not necessarily introduced uh, to Susie when we first heard her talk, but she she came and talked at the school that we're at, and um, her uh, thoughts and uh, yeah experiences that she's been in, I think, was something that kind of captured both of us, and um. Yeah. Craig, you you reached out to her and and yeah. got her on here, which I, yeah, which is really really cool. Susie uh, is, is very much an expert in what she's been through, and it's yep. so important.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has some really good insight on obviously what it's like to live with that as the person who has it, mm-hmm. and also you know gives us a bit of advice on how we might want to treat people. You know, yeah. who, who have schizophrenia if, if they happen to be in our circle. Um, it's some of the you know experiences that they might be having, mm. you know, and some of the isolation they might be feeling and the stigma that they might feel and that sort of stuff. So, yes. yeah, I think episodes like this are really important. Um, and so, yeah, I was really happy that Susie agreed to come on and give yeah. us some time.
1: I agree. So, uh, Enjoy the conversation that we had with Susie. Uh, It it really is a a fantastic conversation, I think, personally. Yeah, yeah, so have a listen um, and we'll see you at the end.
0: <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> oh, no problem. well, without further ado, uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Susie Hinks to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much yeah,
0: and no, that 's really great you could join us today
2: thank you i 'm glad uh, you're interested yeah,
0: that's yeah, no, brilliant. so for people listening, do you just want to give a bit of a brief intro and a bit of a bit about your background
2: and and w- what you 're doing at the moment? Sure, my name is Susie, and I was diagnosed in one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine with a what they call it a mild form of schizophrenia, if there is such a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I didn't hear voices, but I s- lost a substantial part of my twenties to undiagnosed schizophrenia, basically.
0: Okay, um, and that brings you to the modern day where you're uh, involved with uh, with different research groups and advocacy groups.
2: Yeah, and... that that happened over a long period. I mean, it was a, a number of years before I got involved with that, but yeah. I was reading um, the post. And there was an article um, that they were doing research at Greylands into schizophrenia, a family study. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I'd always liked biology at school and I did very basic genetics back then, which was really interesting. So I thought, wow, oh, this sounds really good. I'd like to become involved, which I got in touch with them. And I did become involved and it was really interesting. It was really, um, you know, a, a lot of different things we did um, and they took my blood and the DNA and... And it was very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And through that, I um, was asked to become the consumer representative for the Centre for Clinical Research in Neuropsychiatry under the direction of Professor Asin Jabensky.
0: Okay. And he, he was based at Royal Perth, was that right? Or yes, for a yeah. long time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people at the school will know Asin. Yeah, he's <laughs> pretty well known.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Amazing person. Mm. I was very privileged to work with him and... And the rest of the team there, yeah. they've done some great work, groundbreaking work really.
0: Mm, no, we'll, we'll delve into that a bit more because I know you, you uh, are quite involved in that. Um, do you want to give us a bit of, uh, a, bit of a history? Because I know you grew up in the country and you had a few interesting stories to tell.
2: Yeah, so I did grow up in the country. I grew up on a farm down south. Um, we had a sheep stud and I had ponies and, you know, had a pretty good you – know, I really enjoyed it. I went to a little – one teacher, school in the bush, twenty three kids, seven grades, all in the one <laughs> room. Um, those were the days. Yeah. It was really good because we were more of a farming community. Our nearest town was you know, miles and miles away, so um,
1: it almost become like a little family. Really, yeah. You know.
2: Interesting that you say that because I actually went a couple of weeks ago to a school reunion. This school reunion, one hundred and ninety eight people turned up, and it was amazing. It's always amazing when I go back there. Yeah, it's mm. it because. It's you know it takes a village to raise a child mm. and I think in the, those old in those olden <laughs> days you know it really was a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. Mm. So um, yeah, so I grew up there. Then I went to boarding school for five years in Perth. Um, I'm not really a boarding school kind of girl. I had horses at home that I missed, and uh, so when the time came to most kids went to uni and and um, but. I sort of thought, well, everybody's doing that and I wanted to go back to the farm. So I actually went back to the farm and worked on the farm for a couple of years. The second year, I became a a teacher's aide, pre-primary teacher's aide at the very little school that I'd been to, which was really great. Um, So, and then it was sort of, you know, back, I was always torn between the city and the country because, you know, stuff was going on in the city and my friends were there. And and so I I would spend time in the city working as a nanny or whatever and, Go home for a while, and then I then I did. Um, I was a checkout chick for a while in town, and um, everybody should be a checkout chick at some stage. Now. <laughs> yeah. It's a
1: real like learning
2: curve. It I reckon is. That it job, is. Yeah. It, yeah. It Not that, is.
1: that I've had it myself, but I feel like no, you did learn I think
2: a lot. the equivalent today is bar work. I know lots of ah, young yeah. people do, but well, before COVID, of course. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and one job that I really liked was um, down where we lived, there was a guy that grew asparagus on his property and he invented this great, he used a harvester and he invented a great um, way of harvesting his asparagus mm. and, of course, he needed his um, packers. So I became a packer for six weeks. It was a lot of fun. Mm. It sounds, you know, but it, it was really, it was lovely. It was spring. It was beautiful out in oh, the country. Oh, would have been nice, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so that was one of my, my myriad. <laughs> of... Then it was time to get serious and go to uni. Um, and I went to WAIT, as it was, Curtin, as it is now, and did um, the ubiquitous arts because um, I had, uh, had a really good... It was sort of an alternative to the UWA arts degree, yeah, I suppose, yeah. and, and Murdoch, which was also slightly alternative back then, as far as I was concerned. So I went to WAIT, and I my units were sort of ones like creative writing and theatre arts, you know, um, that sort of thing. And I really liked it but I was really struggling with writing essays. i always been good at English at school and I just, I found it was funny, it really hard and sort of, I was just getting depressed basically. I mean, we were partying a bit but, um, you know, I, I just didn't know what was going on. I remember going to my room and just lying down and just crying and I had no idea what, you yeah. know. So really I think I started off with depression and um, that's how it started. So I couldn't go on. I um, I thought, well, look, I'll, I'll finish another time, but I really... And my parents separated and things like that. So it was a bit of a struggle, really. And so I actually, <laughs> just for fun, I thought, I'll get a job over east in Victoria. So I put my car on the train and went over to Victoria <gasps> and worked there for about seven months near Ballarat. Oh,
1: cool.
2: And it was very cold, um, beautiful country, but, yeah, yeah. very cold and... I was, yeah, didn't get any better. I came back, I was on the farm, and then I went to my grandparents. For, I was obviously not functioning at, mm-hmm. at 100%, but we just did not know mm-hmm. that there was actually something quite serious going and on. And you could yeah. feel
1: that as well as the other people around you? Yeah. I yeah.
2: mean, I yeah, I knew that I I knew that there was something, but I kept thinking, why can't I, you know, it's can, so kind of like, well, it? you know, pull your socks up, you know, yeah. get, get on over with it. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mm. Um and I suppose I thought well perhaps I'm a bit sad about my parents or I, d- I yeah I I just didn't know and back then this was in the eighties mm. so I was 22 and there was less awareness back then mm-hmm. yes yeah. so, oh
1: absolutely
2: oh, yeah. <laughs> so you know I'm I'm so impressed today with the way everyone's young people are so aware of it mind you there seems to be a lot more mental illness around but. Mm. Um, yeah,
0: I always wonder if there's more around or if we're just better at recognising it yeah. and so it seems like there's more around. I don't really know. Yeah,
2: I I mean I think that's a really good, because I've always thought that too, but I th- I honestly think there really seems to be more. Mm. Um, perhaps it was like, perhaps you're right, perhaps it was a bit like after World War One, mm. when so many people came back so damaged but you didn't hear about it because you didn't talk about it and they didn't talk about it mm, yeah. and yeah. they just quietly sort of died or drank themselves to death or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I
1: think we'll mm-hmm. find it would probably be a combination of, of everything where it mm. is increasing a bit more. Um, well, I know that s- the definitions have changed as well. Over yeah. time. Yes, that's yeah.
2: true. And and especially with COVID, obviously, that's a whole oh, new pressure. Absolutely. That that's yeah. just blows the whole thing out of the water. Definitely.
0: Yeah, yeah. so this heightened anxiety amongst a lot of the community, you know, and nervousness and that sort of thing. But yeah. I also wonder what role things like social media play with the younger generations oh. who've never grown up with anything else. Yeah. Uh, I, I was having this conversation with someone the other day, you know, I was 20, I think, when I got my first mobile phone, let let alone mm. an iPhone or, uh, you know, some sort of a... Um, you know, Mm. internet-connected device. And so I wonder if you're exposed to that from a young age, whether that has an impact.
2: I I mean, I know I'm sounding really old now, Mm -hmm. but I agree with you entirely. I think social media has a lot to answer for. I think, you know, modern technology is amazing and it can do so much. And the fact that we can just get information on our phones then sort of straight away is amazing, but the social media thing really it's got out of control. Mm. I think it's really damaging and the pressure that the kids are put under in a lot of ways because they have so much more, there's a lot more expected of them and I think you know it it's not. Kids are not allowed to be kids. Kids have to be doing something twenty four hours a day. Mm. They don't know how to entertain themselves. They don't seem to be able to just sit and read a book. Because goodness me, what's a book anyway? And, mm. You know, and, and I mean, growing up on a farm, we we had to do our own thing. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of young, even young children, it's like, well, give me give me, give some, me entertain something entertain me, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah. rather than figure out your own thing. And I th- yeah, all of
2: that makes. And I think the 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 societal um, the societal. It's really funny. One step forward, two steps back in some ways, because society sort of changes for the better in some ways, and yet, and yet it's sort of you know our awareness of climate change or mm-hmm. mental health mm-hmm. issues and stuff are great, especially for young people. But also, there's an ex- the things we want and the things we use and the thing our throwaway mm-hmm. society. You know, it's mm-hmm. all. We've got to have so much, which is not necessarily good for you. No. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it, again, puts the pressure on
0: people. Yeah, it people does. feel like they're missing out or they're not yeah, doing what they should true. be. It's yeah. FOMO,
2: isn't it? Oh, it's FOMO.
0: Yeah, yeah, It
1: definitely is fear of missing out. Uh, yeah.
0: And I reckon that's a big part of why some people who know it's bad for them stay on social media because they've got mm. a fear of missing out. You know, I yeah. miss an invite to a party. Mm-hmm. or I won't Of course, out what's yeah, because
2: I forget that these days everything is on. So, if you want to know about a party, it's on social media, isn't it? Mm. Everything. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. No, I have a couple of friends that aren't on social media. Um, one of them being my partner, um, and the amount of times that I have to tell them when things are going on and. Oh, it's very painful because then I have to be on there and I have to remember all those things to tell yeah. him so then he's invited and, yeah, <laughs> duh, terrible. Um, yes.
0: Yeah. So going back to a simpler time before social media, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, you, you were in Victoria and you came back and you were on the farm for a little while?
2: Yeah, so I was on the farm and I was meant to sort of be helping but actually, you no, know, I was just listening to music, smoking, uh smoking is really, or has been, I don't smoke anymore, but it's the great friend of people with mental illness because mm. it's kind of the only thing you feel good about, mm-hmm. um, which is sad because obviously it's so bad for you. Um, yeah, so in the end, my, my dad, had a, you know, he, he, they, my, he took me to a doctor. Um, then my mum took me to a doctor in person. It, they just sort of, yeah, you're probably a bit depressed and not a lot mm-hmm. came from it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so in the end I ended up going to my long-suffering grandparents in Perth who were great and I sort of, you know, I would just stay up really late and then sleep in and smoke and drink copious amounts of coffee and tea and, and um, yeah, and eventually... Um, my grandfather died, did die from cancer, and and eventually my parents or my mum said, well, you know, you you can't stay at your nannas anymore. So I was moved out into a lo- into a flat locally, um, and that seems to me where the the real sort of aspects of psychosis started kicking in. Um, I mean I was already a bit already a bit paranoid. I always remember being at my grandparents' laying lying down and had the radio on and that I think it's a Pink Floyd song, Comfortably Numb came uh, yeah. on. Mm-hmm. And I remember just lying there listening to, to it and just so relating to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I look back and I thought, My God, how perfect was that song for that moment for me. Um but I didn't really know what I was what it was about the song, but yes, I had in retrospect, I was certainly com- not comfortably, but certainly numb and um, emotionally anyway. And so, yeah, once it was in my flat, that I sort of would sleep late um, and go to bed late, smoking, not eating. I it got to the stage where I, my self care was really bad, um, and I was paranoid and delusional. I, I didn't hear voices, which just goes to show you that. Um, you know, everybody is different. Each Mm -hmm. illness has its own sort of course. Mm -hmm. And um, because hearing voices is quite common in schizophrenia. My cousin, who also has schizophrenia, certainly hears voices. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, one up for genetics, I suppose. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've been really lucky in that regard. And... And so, yeah, I, the television was giving me messages. The ads were giving me messages. The radio was, you know, the songs were about me, and most of it was pretty awful. Like you just got it, the perception came it to me. It all seemed quite negative and horrible. Occasionally, were
1: they telling you things like you're bad, like you're not yeah, what well, if at a this, song?
2: Like, no, that or, it wasn't wasn't like voices. It's just okay. I heard the songs as they were, yeah. but they were about me. So if, if there was okay. a song like. um Ah, oh, there's a, Oh, I can't remember. But anyway, look, mm. some of the songs, and they're quite negative, actually. If you look at a lot of songs, they're mm. not always that complimentary about the person they're singing. about. I, and, I, and I would feel it, like the sensitivity levels go yeah, through right. the roof. And occasionally I'd get a song and it was like re- I got really positive vibes, which was a sort of a nice respite from it at all. But, I, you know, I, I imagined so many strange things and I thought people were out to get me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really even trust my family anymore. And it's interesting, I think, in my experience I think in other people's experiences that the um you often really are rude and cold to the ones closest to you and there's a real dichotomy because you've got your really um you sort of don't want anything to do with anybody because you can't relate there's the Mm -hmm. war between you and them Mm -hmm. but on the other hand you're incredibly lonely and you really do need comfort it's yeah, it's hard to explain, but it's um, uh, it, yeah. So that's what it was like. And my self care, like I could barely cook. I lost a lot of weight. Mm. I, um, my hair, like I thought there was the paranoias and delusions. I thought there was a video in the shower, so I wouldn't have a shower. Right. Um, obviously there wasn't but I it was well hidden so I couldn't mm, see. You yeah. find
1: it, yeah. That and, <laughs>
2: makes it tough. Um, so it it all sounds pretty awful, which it was and my hair, which was quite long, was so knotted and matted because washing it was a thing of the past. And eventually I had ended up with a silver lovely silver chain lady who used to come in and clean for me mm-hmm. because obviously I could no longer do that. And I remember saying to her, Will you she, I got some scissors and I said, well, poor thing now, I look back on it. I got some scissors and I said, will you please cut the knots out of my hair? And she said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. So when she'd gone, I did. So you can imagine what it looked like. I didn't care. So mm. um, Yeah, so that sort of thing and um, just trying to think. Yeah, I didn't want to see people. If I heard a knock on the mm. door, it would sort of be like, oh, God. And yeah. I would just sit there and smoke, look out of my little window and just, drifted
0: off. So it sounded like, generally speaking, you didn't really want to see people, but was there any person or people that you were comfortable around during that period?
2: Uh, if, I, if I ever saw any of my friends, I was fairly comfortable seeing them. I didn't really see many people. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't go out during the day. I, was too, I became too scared. I only went out at night. Um, usually, which is not a great idea mm-hmm. when you're in your twenties and you're a young woman. Um, so I yeah, I I suppose I did see my mum, um but you know, I was sometimes rude to her and yeah, I wasn't much fun to be around. Okay.
0: This is and at this point you didn't know what, what the condition was or you
2: hadn't no, been. No, no. There such. was obviously something and yeah. so um it i I I ended up just Disappearing basically one day. And um, so when mum was living in the country, but when she came up to see me, they couldn't find me and the police rushed down my door and broke the lock and they couldn't find me. And I was actually had started. (laughs) Sort of I'd met some guy in a bar late at night and went back to his flat. <laughs> it sounds really bad. But anyway, I did and and I ended up staying there. And because partly because the flat he was in was so high up and I don't like heights at the best of times and I was too frightened to get out. Oh, and okay. I, again, I fairly knew what I was doing. It's, it's hard to describe that state of mind. I can look back now and think it's really interesting. It's like having a foot in both camps now because mm. mm. I, I, I've lived it and experienced the psychosis, but now I, I see people and they wonder and they think, what was going on in your <laughs> head? Mm. But that that was my state of mind and there was no, um, you know, that was all I knew then. Um, so I stayed there until he, he brought him a paper once. At least he fed me actually. <laughs> um, and... I brought home, he brought home a paper and he said to me, there's a photo of you in this paper. And I said, oh, and I'm so vain, I don't want to see photos of myself. (laughs) And um, they never match up to the real things. And and so I didn't ever look at it. Now, it's pretty unusual that someone says, hey, there's a photo of you in the West, you know, and you go, oh, no, I don't want to look at that. that It was a photo that, um, my mother had gotten the paper looking for me or the police or whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah, um, I uh, I just stayed there until I was walk. I did one time we went out and I was walking along and some policemen came up to me and asked who I was and I told them. And, and he said, your mother's looking for you and you better ring her. So I went and I rang a friend and she said, you better ring your mother. So I did and... Um, I was then taken to Charlie Gardner's for um an emergency consultation with a psychiatrist there. and um, so then it was worked, and I was gi- I always remember this I was given a hundred dollars um, sort of emergency funding because mm. I had no money, no nothing. Um, and this is how you know people wonder whether where why there are homeless people on the streets. This is why mm-hmm. you know, partly anyway. Um, and anyway. I uh, ended up going to see I was booked into see a registrar a psychiatrist every 2 weeks. So I did. I started seeing this guy and um he was very nice man, very gentle and um he sort of felt that, you know, that there was something wrong and would I like to take medication? And of course, very common, I said no. Yeah. Well, I didn't think I was ill and by that stage and you know, I what was I even doing here, and all of that sort of thing. Um, so he didn't really push the issue mm-hmm. too much, and um, yeah, I uh, I just went on for another two years. What for changed change. your
1: mind? To Nothing
2: changed. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, there's a lot to be said for force.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> so
2: no, I, I I went on further, and my mother. Was part of a group called ARAFME, which is the Association for the Relatives and Friends of Mentally Ill, which was, I think, is now Carers, part of CARES WA, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but it was an association for people who had, re- well, obviously people in their family or friends who were mentally ill. Really good association, actually for its time, I think, and she met a psychiatrist there who basically she was talking to him about me and he said, hmm, he sent a nurse around to see me and I was suitably rude to the nurse Um, and I didn't want the nurse. I had no idea what he was doing there. He was a nice guy anyway but, you know, I wasn't. So the next thing the psychiatrist came and he just had a little interview with me and then the next thing I know... A few days, I can't remember the time lapse, but um, there's a knock on the door and there are these two young policemen there and they're saying, well, we're taking you to Greylands. And I knew very little about Greylands. Um, I lived in the western suburbs. I've been to school in the western suburbs, so I didn't know a lot about it. Mm. I knew that that was where um, people went who were what the people used to say were crazy and all that or had what they used to call nervous breakdowns. Um which is a lovely euphemism, <laughs> and so I. But I thought, well, this is ridiculous, you know. And I wasn't going anywhere with them, and they just came in and they said, "Well, you are." And I, th- I said, "No," you know. Um, but then they grabbed a bag and then they started packing my bag. <laughs> and I'm just watching them, and he and and I. I tell this story because it's sort of. It sort of humanises it a bit, I suppose. I just remember them opening my top drawer and I was thinking, oh, my God, that's my top drawer. I must have been a little bit organised because I thought, well, that's where I keep my undies. These <laughs> men will see my undies. You know? Anyway, they packed the bag and eventually I um, I did consent to going with them because they were just not going to back down. Mm. I mean, they they were really nice when I look back on it. I mean, you know, I was a bit of a recalcitrant, as one is. Um, but... I yeah I was taken t- to a car where there was a nurse and popped in there and then the, I got a police escort to Grandlands um where it was just like a, it's a whole it was a whole new world there um and I had, they told me to have a shower and I went in and I thought, you know, this is the sort of thing I think. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in a nuclear reactor. I've got to <laughs> yeah. hurry and get out of here. And mm-hmm. and people wonder why people with mental illness sort of behave so radically in their minds. They're going through hell, you know. And afterwards when it was time to go to bed, I was in a room with four beds and this nurse came in and she, she was giving me some, I suppose it was a med, really, meds, and I, I said, no, I, I was thought she's some sort of a witch and she's trying to poison me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't want to take it. I think I did, though, from memory. And I slept there that night and stayed there. It was really weird because, you know, in admissions, the admissions area back then there was, there, there still are a great big, wire fences around mm, there. So mm-hmm. you sit out there and you smoke. Everybody smokes out there. And mm-hmm. and they were doing, you know, those lights that sometimes go across the sky. Oh, yeah. It was really – It was watching that and smoking and talking with these people who were as sick as I was and and it was just really surreal that, that overused work. But honestly, these sort of swords of light flashing across the sky and I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> um And then you get put into a ward and sh- – that's when you you would dutifully line up for medication after your meals. At least I got fed there, actually. Mm-hmm. But they were giving me tablets, which I would pop under my tongue and go and spit out in the basin, which apparently is really, really common. Yeah. Um, so they were onto that. So they gave me a pink drink. It's called Stelazine, um, which was quite common back then. I don't know if they still use it now, but. Um, I drank it, and over about three or four days, seriously, my mum was coming to see me, and we one, you know, I was virtually we actually had a conversation, a proper one for the first time in years. Mm-hmm. We had a meal together. I ate like a horse, and we, um, yeah, it was amazing. Really, it was. I'm really count myself so lucky that that I responded well to a relatively low dose of medication. And that would have mm-hmm.
1: been the the turning point, really.
2: Certainly that first was, experience, yeah, yeah, and I'm when, and that's why, even though I went sort of under duress to Greylands, there are reasons for that. Mm. There are reasons why people do that, and, um, and I'm so glad. I wish it had happened earlier. I wish I'd said yes to the medication with the original registrar psychiatrist, yeah. but you know, obviously, I was sick and I didn't. Yeah. Mm. And he was very respectful of me, um, as a, as a good psychiatrist is, and, um, but I. Yeah, but by the same token, you sometimes you, you – I'm so grateful because the medication, even though it flattens you and puts on weight and side effects, at least it m- makes my brain function to a point where I'm lucid enough to be able to make choices mm-hmm. about whether mm-hmm. or not I want to take the medication. I mean, some people don't take it because the side effects are just too much. They just can't handle it. Oh, and also it does take away your – that oh, I don't know that life force, you know. Um, I think anyway, but mm. I don't know. I'm getting old anyway. What do I know? That life force. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, it's a common thing you hear. Yeah. People who are t- taking antipsychotic medication, you know, whether it's for. Um, something like bipolar disorder, yeah, that's mm. what I was thinking mm. also, you know, um, schizophrenia. Is they do say that obviously there are pros and cons, and for some oh, people, yeah. the, they don't think that the benefits outweigh the yeah. you know, the costs. And
2: I, yeah, and I and I know with people with bipolar who to me seem always seem incredibly intelligent and talented, um, and they often their creative bit comes in their mm. highs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, – but I remember speaking with a psychologist about it once and she said, yeah, but the lows are just, you know, devastating obviously. Yeah. So mm. – um, but you can – but I know people who say I, I don't want to take the meds because it, you know, it does. It flattens me and I can't be as creative. I was – I always remember being told that schizophrenia was not a creative illness. All oh, right,
0: right. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder how they came to uh, that conclusion. Yeah. He, was a, he was
2: a very competent psychiatrist. Yeah. Um Yes, because I th- – because I had – um a little a sort of a predilection for writing when I was younger and I was sort of like, oh God, that as well. We can't <laughs> even do anything anymore. Um but yeah, but it, the thing with schizophrenia is you don't get big highs the way no. you say you might with bipolar. Um so it's not it's a really dull disease, you know. No wonder that's never gets any funding. It's very unsexy. Right. Um <laughs> That's
1: really interesting because I I, I did an undergrad in in psychology. Oh, right. One of the main reasons why I decided to do that was because I read a book about schizophrenia and I thought it was fascinating. Oh, right. was the most fascinating thing that I've ever read. Uh, It was a fiction book. It was based in like early 1900s about what happened to patients with schizophrenia at that time. Yeah. so yeah, to hear that it's like unsexy, I'm like, oh man! Like I was so
2: interested in it; it was that's fascinating to me. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's mm. it, no, it's great. I I love speaking with people who find it interesting because a lot of people just find it really scary, you right, know. Yeah, um, which you know, it has some scary moments, but then most things do.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and um, so may I ask what book you you were
1: you uh, I can't remember the title of it. Um, it it was it, it's a book about uh. Someone also who lived on a farm um, had a brother that ended up with schizophrenia and they had to lock him in one of the farm sheds. And so he lived there for most of his life. And then the brother became one of the first
2: psychiatrists to oh, um,
1: right. kind of figure out everything about schizophrenia and the, the pathway and the development and the genetics and all that so, kind of so stuff.
2: So it's not true. It's a novel, it, it?
1: It's not true. It is it is a, a fiction book, but I mm. think there is like little pockets of, mm. of fact about how it kind of um, uh, developed over time. Yeah. And he was basically inspired b- by his brother to go through the pathway yeah. of psychiatry. That's really interesting
2: because yeah. I do know a professor who's, who works in Sydney who um, – has done really interesting work on schizophrenia mm. she's with neura and she had a twin who obviously she grew up with and uh he died but he had schizophrenia mm. and she's and that was an inspiration to her mm. i mean this is a really true story um but it, it's a it's a very inspiring story i mean it's a very sad story but it's very inspiring as mm. well um that, you know, she, that she's just dedicated her working life to this, which I think is amazing. Yeah,
1: fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's always impressive when, when people do that, I think. Um, mm. And I think because of the genetic factor of schizophrenia, Mm. being a family member of that would be would be absolutely fascinating mm.
2: Yeah. Mm. yeah and especially having so much knowledge about you oh, know okay. that the lived experience which is so vital in research oh know.
1: absolutely so, yeah and I, for any form of mental health i think that lived experience is incredibly important particularly because we are at such like in my mind we're in such the early stages of kind of figuring out what mental health actually is yeah um, yeah and I, I yeah, agree with yeah that. very important
0: mm. Mm. so you It sounds like you had a good experience getting treated and that you found a solution to your your, your Um,
2: schizophrenia. Solution was probably not quite the word I'd use, but I I know what you're getting at. Mm. Look, it was a breakthrough for me. It changed my life from what it had been. Um, I was there for five weeks in Greylands and they wouldn't let me go until I had a needle in the buttock so I didn't really consent to that for okay. a while.
0: Is this a depot injection? Yeah, yeah, it was the
2: start of it. Yeah, so yeah. I, I had to have two before they would let me go home. Okay. Um, eventually, I thought oh, I really don't want to stay here. And it, it's you know my experience here wasn't too bad. Um, I've heard other stories, but um, seriously, the nurses, most of them were um, actually I just I love the English nurses, actually, or the UK nurses. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just they're very competent um, and they're really very, something very humane about them. Like, that's my experience anyway. Mm. But, yeah, so I consented to having the needles and which was the beginning of a long time of having needles and um, I still don't like looking at needle, getting a needle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I went home and sort of started the long, slow journey back to so-called normality, which I don't think I've ever really hit, but, you know. <laughs> I don't know that a lot of us do. I don't know. Yeah, I I've been that. told many times these days, you know, what is normal, you know. We're yeah. all on some sort of a, well, we're all on a spectrum mm. anyway.
0: So with the benefit of having a, an, a like a reasonably effective treatment mm. um, to sort of maintain and, um, your, you know, your, your state of mind and whatnot, did you find that in that period afterwards that you started doing things that you hadn't done for a while or?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I started Cooking again. I started cleaning up. I started doing my washing, and you know, yeah. I
1: yeah. mean, it
2: all started coming together again. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Even that would have felt surreal, though.
2: Yeah, and it, because that. you start looking back on what's happened, yeah. and it's like, And I think it was so close. I, I, I just, I just was looking. am not necessarily looking forward, but just enjoying doing very simple things, mm-hmm. a simple life. I suppose I still think right up until today, and this was a long time ago, I I still think I'm rehabilitating. Mm-hmm. I, I still find things in my mind now that maybe I thought or experienced before I was ill that, or things I wanted to do. Or, I suppose, you know, I'm older now and I'm, you know, 30 you know, 30 millionth midlife crisis. Oh, God, what have I done? <laughs> what what should I do? And what can I do before I die? And all that yeah. stuff. And, yeah. and but, but yeah, I it it, it was amazing. Um, and it, they do say it takes a couple of years to get over an episode, anyway. Mm. So, okay.
0: yeah, and was that your experience? It took a couple yeah, of years, yeah, to a degree. Yeah.
2: But I think what unfortunately, well, for me, I think I wished I'd seen a, a, a psychologist that understood, um something about mental illness. I did eventually, but not for a long time. Okay. Um, I I think that's – you really need a holistic approach to mental illness, a bit of everything, and a a good psychologist can be really – because there's so much that you come out of when you start Mm. thinking about – if you dare to start thinking about what you've been through. There's a lot that you go through. I mean, there's – and building up a life again. You know, it's very lonely. It's a special kind of loneliness, having a Mm. mental illness. And I think – There there are lots of things that, you know, the loneliness, the guilt, the the stigma, the self-stigma, the resulting self-stigma, societal attitudes. um, There's a lot to come to terms with, you know, and and the people around you and what you may have said or done or while you're ill and and, and how it affects family Mm -hmm. and friends and the fact that you just, I felt so bad for years um, about having an illness, you know, I felt. You just feel like a, you know, a second-class citizen, which in some ways you are treated that way or have been in the past. In the past, yeah. So um, it's, it's interesting. I've really only started exploring that again, really, the the, the societal stigma which then helps you, you know, your own your self-stigma to grow and fester. And if you're not really getting help there and not getting out and not being a part of the community or doing what you love or finding... Mm-hmm what you can do, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it it can be very, very oh, debilitating. Mm.
0: That's interesting that you mentioned loneliness because I think I mentioned to you when we were talking about doing this episode that we had Professor Joe Bagcock on here.
2: Yes. Talking yes. about
0: loneliness and schizophrenia and, and hearing voices and that sort of stuff. Um, so obviously there's that emotional kind of loneliness. Um, mm. did, do you find that you were, um, have you always lived alone as well to sort of, to, you know, yeah,
2: to, since the illness. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, I've, I've had some, some time I lived with a friend for a while, and then another time I lived in their country with my dad and his wife for yeah. a while. Does so that make a difference? Does that? It does. Yeah. 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 It does make a difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've sort of had, I have had a few glitches. I've never been back to hospital, but I've had a few glitches, and I think it must be very difficult for people to live with that. And I think you, and of course the older you get you get set in your ways but you do tend to sometimes it's easier to live on your own because mm-hmm. that way you don't have to worry about the whole mental illness thing mm-hmm. you know but yeah. you know that's not to say that people with mental people with mental illness need people just like everybody of needs course. people
0: yeah so but yeah so it sounds like you you live r- really independently and you know since yeah been,
2: reasonably so yeah. yeah i mean i see a lot of my mum and um yeah, I've I, I caught up with all my old friends. I, I mm. made a point of doing that and they've been very tolerant. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, and and I've met some amazing people, you know, with m- the little bit of advocacy that I've done. Mm. Honestly, you know, I, everyone I meet is just, you know, they're an inspiration in their own way. And And, of course, the people that I've met that have, you know, serious mental illness or mental illness, Absolutely inspirational and, Mm. you know, they're they're sitting in the suburbs doing their thing, doing their courses or just getting by, you know, through really tough circumstances and I have great admiration for them. And, you know, I I sort of think about, you know, our social heroes, you know, Mm. the, the... pop stars and the footballers and all of that, <laughs> yeah. and I sort of think, you know, along with our COVID people and our scientific researchers, you know, you've got people who really do it tough, and mm. they're not given the profile that, say, and you know, say cancer sufferers, which, of course, everybody deserves the best of everything. Yeah. Um but, you know, it's – you don't get too many – well, I didn't get any flowers when I was in Greatlands, put it yeah. that way, and I didn't see anyone else get any. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. you, so you get my – are, There are some yeah.
1: diseases that are different to mental health and will be treated differently. Yeah. I think mm.
2: that's the, well, the, yeah. you know, you and you get often – or in the past you've had more high-profile people coming to say, look, Absolutely. I've suffered from this or I've had a child or relative or friend – and they come for and th- and that seems to do wonders for mm. funding research. Yeah. You know, I just think of Elizabeth Taylor and Elton John with AIDS. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, and there are and there are there are, oh who else? And then there was Glenn McGrath with yeah. breast cancer. Yeah. You know, and the wife. cricketer, and Angelina and his Jolie wife as well. Yeah, she, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And this is great, but unfortunately, the nature of mental illness is such that the voice is sometimes really, really lost, yeah. which is mm. why I have done the bit of speaking that I do, and that's why I do it,
0: not necessarily
2: yeah. because I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs>
0: Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealthatoutlook.com or tweet us at means what? And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show.
1: But yeah. I think like that's a really important point is you, you went through all of this kind of experience in your life and then there was something that Helped you turn that into something that can help others with your advocacy work. So, how did you make that choice to go into advocacy?
2: Um, the choice. But I, spe- I think the first time I was asked, I was at the Avro Clinic in Subiaco, mm-hmm. which you know, a great little clinic, and um, I I was asked. They had what we call a CAG group, which is a consumer advisory or consumer advocacy group. Yep. I can't remember which one they decided on. Something like yet.
1: that. Something <laughs> like
2: that. And they asked me to be a part of it. Um, it was part of the um, just, you know, checking out the general mm-hmm. surrounds of Avro, what was going on there, mm-hmm. keeping an eye on everything. So I did join that and I found that quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then through that, uh, one of the nurses said to me, look, Um, I know someone at Curtin um, who needs someone to speak about their experiences with mental illness to some of their students. Mm -hmm. And he said, you would get paid for it. (laughs) And I have to admit, (laughs) he said you'd get paid lecturer rates. Well, you know, for someone on a pension, that's actually pretty appealing. Mm -hmm. But that was not the wrong... I was beginning to realise that starting to find my voice, um, I realised that there were people who had no idea about mental illness and they just saw it as this horrible, horrible thing and people with mental illness were monsters. And I really believed in firstly showing that people with mental illness can live relatively so-called normal lives but also they can present well, for want of a better word, but... Also, just to show, showing the human side of it, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that, it's so the re, it's just giving a voice um, to, to, for people who saying things on behalf, well, on behalf sort of for people who can't. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I'd seen, you know, how sick some people get and the suicide and, and it's just, you know, and I just thought, you know, this if I can do my little bit, it won't be a lot, but at least I'll get it out there and I might get paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was sort of, yeah. So mm-hmm. I guess, I guess essentially it was reasonably altruistic, Altruistic insofar as, well, I was doing it because I did think it was going to be helpful yep. in the long run. Um, but of course, it's motivated by the fact that. No, know, this has affected me, you know, mm-hmm. and I want you to understand that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. fair enough. And I, I think unexpected. most
1: people's actions kind of fall in that category.
2: So, yeah, so, yeah, so mm-hmm. that sort of started it. Um, I spoke at Curtin and then I think one thing led to another and also um, I was also up being part of the Consumer Advisory Group. We were told about this group of people in Fremantle to do with Alma Street who were going to get people with lived experience of mental illness to do some writing under the auspices of a, um, a uh, an, well, a liter- sort of literary tutor kind of thing, mm-hmm. and in order to disseminate that in the community to try and help reduce stigma. Well, I was like onto that in a shot. I mm-hmm. thought, that's great. So I became a part of that. It was called Fascinate, um, and... There were. Oh, it was really, it was amazing. It was a real eye-opener for me. It wasn't meant to be therapeutic. There were about, There were two groups of us, I suppose there were about 10 in our group initially, and we had a great tutor who studied at RMIT in Melbourne, and he sort of would send us exercises, but he'd try and help us, you know, about memories of being mentally ill or all sorts of things, but he would try and help us to actually make it into a piece of prose or poetry or Something sort of not just a description mm. so it was really, really interesting and i i, I found it uh, it really inspired me and and I think it was a little bit therapeutic in that all of a sudden you know we were interviewed by RTO.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um we were we were asked to record some of our stories onto disk and And suddenly people wanted to hear this and it was good for all of us and it was really interesting. I'm still in touch with one of the the ladies today. It was really amazing, such different people with such different stories to tell and some incredibly moving. Um, And so that was, we were eventually, we were to our, Surprise and happiness. We were published by Fremantle Press. Oh, nice. Mm. Um, and it eventually, the, the plan, and I assume this happened, it was the book was, it was called Fascinate. Okay. And it was distributed amongst all the, I think it was the public high schools in WA just to help sort of get across the message of the human side of mental illness. Yeah.
0: It's so widespread and it can happen to anyone. and, you know, yeah, and it's, and it's yeah. the
2: humans. It's just, Again, it's not just, oh, God, they're crazy, they're dangerous. It's like there's another side to this story yeah. and you need to hear it.
0: Yeah, mm. that's important. So was this involved with Meeting for Minds? And we should probably tell people what Meeting for Minds is and how it started and, and that sort sure.
2: of thing. Sure. So, um, no, that was another aspect of my life. A um, friend of mine had lived in... Paris for many years and she came back and we kind of swapped stories and I told her about my experience with schizophrenia and things like that. And I said to her, complaining, as a good farmer's daughter does, (laughs) I said, um, you know, there seemed to be balls or functions for fundraising and awareness for everything except mental illness. And the other thing that was really bugging me at the time was was getting people knocking on my door. It seemed to be constantly asking for money for all sorts of things from um, from animals to children to all these good, worthy causes, cancer, of course. And I said, there's never anything for mental illness. I was telling you. And she's this Maria is an absolute goer and an ideas woman. She said, let's do it. So we set out to do that. I mean, sort of talk about castles in the air, but um, <laughs> but we didn't. We ended up meeting some great people, including Keith Wilson, who's a great mental health advocate, former health minister in w, former WA health minister. And we met some great people. We and in the Maria who travelled a lot ended up going to Israel, meeting some great scientists. She came back with the idea: let's have a forum. So, Meeting for Minds came into being in October in 2013, mm-hmm. which is a not-for-profit organisation which is um, has um, sort of basis. or its base started here in Perth, mm-hmm. um, but it's in Israel, Switzerland, France and Sweden. Um, so, the first forum was held in 2014 at the Fremantle Maritime Museum, and there were There were scientists from overseas. There were people who lived experience of mental illness. Fiona Stanley was there. Um, Oh, yeah. So we had a lot of interesting people. It was two days from memory. And so that was the beginning. So Maria's very good at getting people together. And that was actually followed by another forum two years later. Um, So that was also in Fremantle in the... I can't remember which shed it was... b shape. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah.
0: Daniel the Water, one of those Yeah, water. yeah, yeah. yeah okay.
2: um, I've still got a great sunset shot over the water. <laughs> um, but, and again, we had people from other places and so we had some great speakers. Professor Ian Hickey and his wife, Liz, were over from, from Sydney and so we, we had some great people and mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's part of, Meeting for Minds, what meeting? How Meeting for Minds started?
0: And, and does Meeting for Minds sort of have ongoing activities, or is it more? Yeah, forums?
2: sure. Um, we've had we had a hackathon a few years ago, um, and that was really interesting. We had a workshop in Fremantle, getting vi- the various parties together, interested parties together to say, well, what do you actually want and need? Mm. So that was a, that was an interesting workshop. Yeah. Um, and and often there are corresponding events in, say, Switzerland um, mm-hmm. that things go along there too. Getting people with lived experience involved in research is a very big thing at the moment with Meeting for Minds and not just as the subjects but as contributing partners. Mm-hmm. Um, their perspective is unique. They had a sense of urgency. And, I mean, you know, the, the researchers, these are the people that are going to be or can be most affected by the research. So why wouldn't you mm. include the people whose lives it could change so dramatically yeah. for the better?
1: It also yeah. helps direct questions
2: and go, does it, this yeah. actually matter what we're doing? Well, this is it. Yeah. On is I, it going to help yeah, or is it going to so, that, yeah. And that's yeah. how I see my role with, yeah. with Nero actually. Um, yeah. is, and, and CCRM was like, well, you're talking about this. How is it actually going to affect someone mm. who's, in, who's really psychotic? You Know in, in now, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, well, how is this? How do we translate this into something yeah. that I can see as being efficacious?
0: Yeah, okay, so that's you've mentioned the Ruin CCRN, which is some um, neuropsychiatric Epidemi- Ep- epidemiology <laughs> research unit, and then the community.
2: Consumer. Oh, the CCRN, which is. Yeah. The first one. Um, the first one I was with with Professor Asin Jablenski, yeah. the Centre for Clinical Research in Neuropsychiatry. Yeah, okay. So that was the first one I was involved with. Okay, yeah. And then NARU, which is a neuropsychiatric epidemiology research unit. Yep. That at, um, within the School of Population and Global Health is um, the one I'm currently involved with. Okay. There.
0: And and yeah. so yeah, do you just want to give us a bit of uh, background on what you do with them and what your ongoing activities are there?
2: Well, I've, I've been with them, I suppose it must be two years now. Um. So I'm. <laughs> I thought the thing that just came to mind there was: was it Bob Hawke or, or was it the um, the Democrats? No, um, Liberal Democrats. I'm just thinking yeah. someone keeping the bastards honest, which I don't know if you're allowed to swear on a podcast, but yeah, you uh,
0: can absolutely. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but it's
2: not that I think that researchers are bastards. It's just. I see my role as grounding. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, like I don't understand a lot of science. I'm obviously not a scientist, but I I have a great admiration and I believe in science um, as a a very, I I think science gives me hope Mm -hmm. um, for the future, for people in the future, for my relatives. Um, And, I. yeah, so I, I guess I ask questions and then I might say, if we're talking about a project, you know, well, how will this affect so-and-so, you know, a certain mm. cohort or something. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, I get asked about potential interview questions in research, what might be good to, to ask someone who may be ill. Um, uh, what else do I do? I'm, I'm, I attend all the meetings, obviously, and I ask my dumb questions <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and they're very good. They're very patient with me. Um, and I, I've given – I've been asked to give talks Yep. so about stigma um mm-hmm. which I guess again it's humanising the illness they're doing their stuff, which is really interesting you know they've they've done the um ship survey, which was an australia wide survey yep. um on mental illness and i i you know i i i guess i I'm there to to earth them a bit yep. i feel. So, so some
0: of the questions in that survey, I'm assuming, were informed by you and, and people. No, like no. Info. They that
2: happened before I came along. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. That that was that was a huge thing and it's yeah. it's really important because it can inform and they've had they've did one they've done two major ones. So it it's obviously like any big survey, it, it informs hopefully the government and everybody what is going to be needed in the future and it's a very comprehensive one. It's not just what meds do you take, what's wrong with you, are you on a pension. Mm-hmm. It's oh. what do you do, what do you do for fun. what,
0: mm-hmm.
2: You know, the, again, this holistic approach which mm-hmm. is so important with mental illness, I feel.
0: Understanding the life elements. The whole life because everything
2: you. is, you know, I, I was... Um, Watching television in the 90s, a daytime show, actually. And they had, interestingly, a a woman who'd suffered fairly severe psychosis with schizophrenia. And I thought she was pretty brave. She came on. She was very honest about her illness. And she said, you know, it's like your personality is shattered. And I thought that what a great description. It is. It is. you, You literally... Like, like coming out of it, you spend a lot of your life, or at least I have, maybe I'm just self-indulgent, but building up who you are mm-hmm. because you haven't been that person for such a long time, or right. I wasn't anyway. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I guess, so my little anecdotes, if you like, are there to sort of encourage people to... To see how important their work is, too, where they should be going and why they're doing it, a raison d'etre, really, Mm -hmm. for their being. Yeah. Which I think anyone with lived experience of anything can do for researchers. I think researchers are brilliant, but they have to live in their world in order to do what they do. Sometimes you need the worlds to come together and, and cooperate. And, I mean, yeah. unfortunately in Australia, I think scientifically, we we have had a lot of silos going on. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, apparently in Israel, it's they're quite happy to take on board all sorts of things. And I think that's what we need to do with research here more. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah, there is. There obviously is. There are moves to... Increasing the consumer voice in research and yeah. having it actually be part of the whole, pro- like from the start, be part of the process. So they talk about co-design, so co-designing research.
2: Yeah, so, yeah. So
0: you know, people with lived experience yeah. are actually saying these are the questions that you need to ask. Not exactly. Don't come to us and say we think you've got these. This visions. is what you need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean,
2: that, and that's certainly happened in the past with mental illness because of the, the the lack of voice from the person with the illness and. And these sort of people who are up here sort of saying, "Well, this is what you need, and this is what you'll get and yeah. I think you're right it's I remember hearing a few years ago about I think in New South Wales Cancer Council, like they have on their board they have to have someone with lived experience cancer, and they will not give grants to people who don't do not have someone with mm-hmm. lived experience as part of their research team, yeah. So I think it's, that's sensible. It's the way really. of the future, I yeah. think. A bit like you know the way personalized medicine is becoming, which of course is, makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. So
0: just, just out of interest, in in the contacts that you've had with clinicians, you know who might have been, um, you know, treating you over mm-hmm. the years, mm-hmm. did you ever get that sort of paternalistic sense that they were sort of telling you what you needed rather than asking you what you what you might need? Um.
2: I suppose in the beginning I didn't really know what had hit me and I was just listening to them and going, yes, 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 and taking my medication. Um, no, most of them weren't. I, okay. I'm just trying to think. Paternalistic, they were actually quite human. Okay. Um, I don't remember many that were sort of – no, I actually I don't really – but then, yeah, also I because I respond relatively well to medication, I wasn't – I didn't – unless I was getting a bit sick – I didn't get angry or wasn't too confrontational with them. And I think I know that they are trained to deal with that. Hmm. I don't know that sometimes they deal with it that well. I don't know how the training is these days, but... um, I can't ima- I don't imagine it would be very easy to do. And I mm. know a lot of people with mental illness, they're not seen by a lot of people because it's just too hard, which is a really good reason to be funding research into mental illness.
0: Yeah, to see if there's approaches mm. that might work
2: better for oh, people yeah. in that situation. Oh, it, yeah, it's, it's so it got to happen. Hard. Mm. You know, instead of sort of looking at horrible newspaper stories about people, mm. schizophrenics who've killed someone, mm. um, and let's face it, I think statistically, you are more likely to have a so-called normal person murdering someone. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's if 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 you if you instead of going, oh god, another crazy person, look at that, you know, they should lock them up. Just put a couple of dollars into some decent research, you know, yeah. instead of sort of, you know, oh God, lock them away, you
0: know. But, but I don't think the legal profession has done people with mental illness any favours <laughs> because obviously the way the law is, you can use mental illness as a as a defence for one of a better word, and yeah, you know, yeah. sometimes lawyers think that that's that's okay to use.
2: Yes, yeah. I, I, I it, yes, and I know lawyers walk a fine line, don't they? Yeah, they do. But yeah. I find that really. Horrible! I think that's a terrible thing to do. It is so insulting to the people that really, because people have a hard enough time recognizing, um, you know, that someone does something like that. That they have a mental illness. They say, "Oh, yeah, but yeah, but they might have had a mental illness, but that's just an excuse. Mm. Well, it's a bloody good one. Um, Mm. You are not, you know. I look back at the things I've said and done. I mean. You know, if I was sick, I certainly wouldn't be doing this now and I wouldn't be able mm. to talk. To, I'd probably be running a mile from you Right. <laughs> <or> something. <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's a different... You know, your brain chemistry is different. different way of perceiving mm. the world, you know. And yeah. it doesn't mean that just because someone is perceiving things differently that it's not their truth. It is their truth. It's not yours. And just because most people or many people on the planet don't see things that way, but yeah. people forget that, oh, they're not just crazy. This is their perception.
1: And I think that's such an important point in that what you said about your perspective is is your truth. And that everyone mm. has their own version of mm. what their truth is. And just having that as a contextual idea, I feel like would improve a lot of people's perspective about mental illness and things, because it's like. Um, I guess if I had a family member that had mental health, I would perceive whatever they're doing and that's the way I would understand it. But if I could understand their truth, mm. then yeah. my understanding gets better. Yeah, and We can absolutely. all learn from it. And I think that, that's, that's right. the really important thing here.
0: Yeah. And I think that obviously one person's going to have uh, a different experience to the next, but absolutely. there are certain things that probably happen, you know, for a lot of people that we can learn from. Sure. You know? In the
2: same way that, the bulk of people who are not in psychosis experience the same same mm-hmm. way of perceiving. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're sitting here; we're probably seeing to a degree the same walls, the microphone. Yeah. People with mental illness will often have similar delusions and paranoias. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, mm. it's all relative. It is. <laughs>
0: Is there any bit of research in particular that sticks out in your mind as has been particularly worthwhile or eye-catching or, you know, that you've been involved with that you might want to talk um,
2: about? Well, yeah. I, I think the CCRN genetics stuff, well, it's complicated and I can't really describe it very well. Okay. So, um, but I think they did, there are a number of projects going on there. Um, and. I wasn't directly involved with them, but I, I just think any genetic research is mm-hmm. is really really interesting. It's it's helping. I mean, it's not going to probably because apparently there are so many genes involved with schizophrenia, and then you get the overlaps with bipolar and autism right. um, and others. So I, I think that's amazing. I, I'm just blown away by the well, the, the sheer scope of it all. Mm. Um, there was one interesting – I remember they were involved with a, um, in a consortium. There were two universities in America, I think, that they were involved with. And what interested me about that was they were getting – they were not – they were just sort of – and I can't think of the scientific word, but they were categorizing people according to their symptoms, not their illness. Because mm-hmm. basically what they were saying was – you can't really say it's schizophrenia or bipolar. Because the symptoms often overlap. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, well, that is a good, refreshing way because people hate these labels anyway. Um, And so I just found that really interesting. Also, um, So I'm actually becoming involved with um, a a project at the moment with uh, Dr. Nina McCarthy who's um, studied genetics, but she's a lecturer. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's... Um, she's not in Nauru, but she's doing a project which is u- is using genetics to look for biological overlap between psychiatric disorders, and and the um, functions of psych- psychiatric disorders, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. say worry or cognitive functions, loneliness, mm-hmm. um, anxiety. Um, because, yeah, there's just so much overlap in all this and it's really quite interesting. And mm-hmm. so features that are common to psychiatric dis- disorders, so, I mean, I think you probably get anxiety. That's a pretty common one over a lot yeah. e- and even with people with no other psychotic disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, is the biology the same in the different disorders? Okay. Yeah, so interesting. It is. And so we're going to be doing things with that. So I think that's really interesting. Um, again, you know, I... When Nina first asked me about getting involved with this, you know, and I said, so, I say to her, can you sort of explain it to me just in later? <laughs> stuff. But also, I said, okay, so how is this going to help someone in the future with a psychosis? She might not. I mean, not all research obviously translates like yeah. that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I realize that, but it's still worth asking the question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, my <laughs> sort of my little dogmatic little thing. It's like, you know, how is this going to help? Um, so yeah, that's, that's something. Um, I've, um, what else? I'm just trying to think. We'd love to do another ship survey and I'd be involved mm. with that, but that means getting funding. Okay. Um, so it, it all boils down to money, unfortunately. Yep. You sort of think that the great things in the world, you know, um, are not Money oriented, but I think in this instance, (laughs) yeah, they do need money regardless. Yeah, Yeah, uh, great they are. Yeah, so you know, yeah. um, Instead of getting that second car, just put it into (laughs) research.
0: That's true. Yeah, we're probably new
2: ideas out (laughs)
0: coming towards the end of our chat here, Susan. I think so. I was going to ask you, kind of, to finish on if if there are any messages or observations you've got having lived with mental illness and schizophrenia in particular, to for people who. Maybe um, have someone like that in their life, or they come into contact with someone you know to experience that. Is there any, are there any things that you any tips you would give them for you know?
2: Okay, interacting, interacting, interacting. or, or, or yeah. being you know
0: caring or whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean, just bear in mind it's an illness; it's a difficult one. But for all the trouble that you go through as a friend or a carer, or that you feel that you go through emotionally and otherwise. Um, it's you know, you need to bear in mind that they, they, they're they probably going through fear, a lot of fear, frustration, um, and, it, yeah, so it's, it, I guess, it's it's not easy sometimes dealing with someone, especially who's really in psychosis, but I, I read this great book, well, I liked it. It's called Surviving Schizophrenia by Frank E. Torrey, and he is a psychiatrist and a researcher in America, and he, I think he's, a year or two ago, he released his seventh edition of Surviving Schizophrenia. It's very popular, but he covers I- just about everything in different chapters about schizophrenia. It's for lay people, it's for um, you know clinicians, it's it's for friends and relatives, it's for people with mental illness. And he said, "I get asked, well, so you know, what do you, you know, what do you say to someone with a mental illness?" <laughs> you know? And, um, and he said, you know, he just said, be kind. Yeah. And it's sort of, and that's right, You just it, like we should all be to each other in yeah. sort of an ideal fluffy unicorn type of world. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you know, you, you be kind to people because they are, I mean, they might be really difficult to live with, et cetera, but they're going through so much and it's not their fault and it's not your fault. Mm. And, um, so there's a person so in there. You, yeah, there's a person in there, exactly. Mm. And, and you know, be kind to yourself, that's the other thing. Mm. I think if society were to open up a bit more about mental illness, which I know it is, I know the kids today, as I've said, stun me with their, their knowledge mm. and their compassion. It's great. It's going to be great for the future. But, um, you know, we all need to be a bit kinder to ourselves and maybe have different priorities and also to understand that, you know, people with mental illness have a lot to offer. Mm. I, I'm convinced I look at COVID and I think um, this COVID situation and I think, well, you know, welcome to our world, loneliness, mm. um, being locked up in, say, metaphorically in your mind or in a room or whatever. Um, We can learn a lot from people who've been through it. It's like you can learn from people who've been through war or, I mean, it's not the way you want to learn, but you can learn, and you know you can learn from people who've been through mental illness. If you just take the time, just just chat, and and also let people talk to you. It may not make a lot of sense, or it may you may find it a bit boring or a bit st- bit different, mm-hmm. but it's so good to listen to people.
0: Yeah. All right. Well. I'd say on that note, Susie, I'd like to thank you for coming in and joining us today and sharing some of your experience and some of your advice. It's been really good to to hear your story and, um, you know, have the benefit of, you know, what you've been through.
2: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being very patient with me. And thank you very much for your interest too. It's it's great.
0: Thank you. Excellent. And that was... Susie Hinks
1: yeah, fascinating uh, i I really enjoyed talking to Susie. I think um uh, there's so many things that I could just ask more questions about, because yeah, I, like as I said during during the um conversation, one of the original reasons why I ended up doing psychology was because of my fascination with schizophrenia. Um, I just, I found it so interesting that people could hear things that weren't really there and um, what that came across like and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so interesting. Um, so it's actually really great to hear from someone who, it's it's almost a success story. I, like in my, yeah. I, and it's probably not the right wording, it's probably not the right thing to say, um, but it is where she's able to, in quotation marks, live a, a normal life mm-hmm. um, and also talk about her experiences with mental health. That's, from my very little understanding, it can be quite rare, with schizophrenia, to get that.
0: Because I I think she might have used the phrase that her her personality was shattered or something like that when when she was undiagnosed and obviously experienced symptoms without really knowing what was going on. Mm. And by the sounds of it, she's been able to kind of put some of those pieces back together.
1: Yeah, Um, absolutely. Which is just absolute testament to her. And, you know.
0: And she's focusing a lot of her efforts on trying to help people and spread awareness, yeah, you know, about the condition and about the sorts of things people living with it go through and how they might be helped,
1: mm, yeah, to absolutely. improve
0: improve life and not just improve the life of them but the people around them and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's really, it's, yeah, I'm b- yeah. a bit blown away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me
1: too. It, yeah, it, it was a very good conversation and, uh, yeah, we I think we need to have more people like her on because yeah. it's just feels good, you know. It feels good to talk to people about things like that uh, and get kind of that awareness out there. That's Um, it. Yeah. Also, remembered the book that uh, I I mentioned in the conversation. um, Okay. The one that kind of got me into learning about psychology and that's um, Human Traces by Sebastian Falks. It is a very long book. It's probably the size of my two fists put together. Um, (laughs) But once you get into it, at least I found it very interesting, and it is a fiction book, but I think there are some elements of truth there. Yeah, yeah.
0: We'll put a link to that in the show notes, yeah. and we'll also put a link to Susie's book, Fascinate, which she actually kindly left a copy of us. Yeah. to read. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll which put has that.
1: the poetry and um, other kind of prose items yeah. uh, from the group of uh, people who have mental health yeah. um, issues in Frio, and it was, she was the, talking about
0: the group at um, Elmer Street. Yeah, the Elmer Street Centre in Fremantle, who do great work as well. Yep. Um. But yeah, if you've enjoyed this episode and you this is a topic that interests you, then you might want to go back and have a listen to one of our previous episodes with Professor Joe Badcock.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, who is an an academic at UWA, but also does a bit of work with the Perth Voices Clinic.
1: Yeah. So um, also within um, schizophrenia as a field, and that's you know, right. Talks uh, about um, she looks at
0: loneliness, yeah, you know, and, and that obviously was a the theme that came up with Susie today as well. Um, but yeah, if this, if you've been listening to this and, and you think you have something to contribute, whether it's about mental illness or any other topic, yeah, absolutely. Feel free to get if in you touch. feel
1: like you're you've experienced something that you want to share. Let us know, and and yeah. Craig, how how would they contact us to to S- let us know?
0: So one way they might contact us is via our email at meaningofhealth@outlook.com
1: Please do most yeah. of the emails I get are from Domino's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, unfortunate.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we've been offered a few credit cards as oh, well. Oh
1: yes, yes we yeah. have,
0: <laughs> and maybe some legal advice. I think.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's story for maybe like a christmas episode that one uh yeah, yeah. interesting uh, legal advice uh, and if emailing
0: like isn't your thing and you don't have any <laughs> spam to email us then you can tweet us at health means what
1: so please do uh you know twitter's always a good thing uh, i'm constantly yeah. scrolling through it uh, even though you know trying to yeah. do things with my life but again social media kind of Gets a grasp on you sometimes, yeah. Twitter included. But please contact us because we would actually love to hear from the people that listen to our, our episodes. It's, Absolutely. Yeah, it's good to get feedback.
0: Yeah, just, you know, and if you have any comments on how things are going, where you well, are or,
1: yeah. you know. Or links, you want to show us something funny, go yeah. for it.
0: Excellent. All right, <laughs> well, uh, thanks very much, Courtney. <laughs> Thank you. And we will be back with you listeners soon. meaning of health podcast is produced with the support of the school of population and global health and the education enhancement unit at the university of western australia the podcast is produced by craig cumming and courtney webber with music by craig cumming